Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Scarlet Welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and we've got a really great episode for you this week. Brian Haberleg sits down with me to discuss his defense of Ali Sadr in the Southern District of New York. It's a fascinating case, but the real issue here is the extensive prosecutorial misconduct, one of the biggest issues in our criminal justice system. We've discussed it before with the Senator Stevens case, my case, the Ali Shagan case. We've discussed it with judges in season three a bit. And it's not just that it happens so frequently, but it's also because there's no disincentive for prosecutors to commit this misconduct. I mean, nothing ever happens to them, right? They're not charged with any crimes. They're not fined. They're not sanctioned in any way. Nothing happens to them. And you'll hear about the truly jaw-dropping misconduct in this case for Mr. Sodder that almost ruined his life. You'll also hear that this episode was recorded during my white-collar law class at the University of Miami. The episode goes for about an hour um, but then after the hour mark, uh, if you want to keep listening, you'll hear the students' questions of Brian, which I think are pretty interesting and how he responds to them. So thank you for listening. This is For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus. I hope you enjoy the next episode. Um, Brian is a partner at Steptoe & Johnson, one of the great firms in the country. And and he's a real trial lawyer. So. So lots of folks who work at big firms will say they're litigators or trial lawyers. And, you know, they've tried what, Brian, one case in their whole career or something like this. Brian uh, and his partner, Reed Weingarten, are in trial all the time and, and they win cases all the time. They've won uh, the big David Rainey case, which was uh, dealt with the BP spill back in 2015. They won the Richard Ireland case, um, but this was a businessman charged in a, in a pay to play case. And, and most recently, right before the pandemic starts, and, and it bleeds into the pandemic a little bit, is the Ali Sater case in the Southern District of New York. And so, so we're going to talk about that case and prosecutorial misconduct today. Welcome to the class, Brian. Thank you, David. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for the kind introduction. No, of course. So, you know, the case... Your case was in the Southern District of New York. I know you've tried cases all over the place, um, which is both fun, but also nerve wracking to sort of learn the customs and the different, um, how different districts do it. The Southern District of New York likes to talk to themselves as, as the Southern District, you know, and, and how great they are. How, how different was it trying a case there as opposed to the other places you've tried cases? Uh, you know, look, fundamentally, uh, a trial in federal court with the federal rules of evidence is, you know, largely similar district to district. What I think is different about the Southern District is, you know, you're almost always going up against very smart, very ambitious, um, and typically young lawyers who are in it to win and are, are extremely competitive. So you have to be you know, really on the top of your game. And that's true in many major cities. I don't mean to single out New York, but you tend to find um, sort of the best uh, prosecutors out there in the major cities and the larger districts. And the Southern District may be the largest of them uh, and, and has that reputation, as you say, David, for, um, you know, they like to call themselves the sovereign district. They 
uh, view themselves as uh, fairly independent of Maine justice and, um, you know, prosecuting some of the highest profile cases in the country. And, and yours was one of those with the Seder case. Tell us a little about the theory of the government's case, what the indictment charged so that we can get a little bit of background about, about the case. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and his last name's pronounced Sodder. So Al, Sodder, Ali, sorry. Ali Sodder. No, 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 no problem. He, he actually, his full name is Ali Sadr Hashemi Najat. So um, sometimes the uh, opinions that the court published in the case are referred to as U.S. versus Najat, but he goes by Ali Sadr. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to give you an overview. Um, I think to understand the charges, you need to know just a little bit about the facts of the case, and um, I'll do my best to keep it tight. Um, it, um, you know, the case revolved around a $475 million construction project. Um, and the project was uh, being built in Venezuela. And our client worked for an Iranian company that was owned by his father. Um, Ali Sadr was, you know, uh, uh, in his late 20s when he started working on the project. His father owned a, a Iranian construction company called the Iranian International Housing Company. And they had agreed to build this project in Venezuela uh, to essentially create a new city of low-income housing. You might ask yourself, you know, what on earth does this have to do with the United States? And, you know, the reality is not all that much. But um, uh, the case wound up focusing on some monetary transactions. So um, the contract was denominated in U.S. dollars, which is not uncommon uh, for international business transactions. And the government focused on a series of wire transfers that were um, the Venezuelan company paying for the construction. Um, there's no dispute in the case about whether this was real construction. It was. Um, there was no dispute in the case whether the Iranians involved, the company, or our client, or his father, you know, whether they were affiliated with terrorists in any way, whether they were part of the Iranian government, whether they were sanctioned individuals, they weren't. Um, but they were paid in U.S. dollars uh, for a substantial chunk of this construction work. And, you know, the U.S. dollar transactions were made from one foreign bank to another foreign bank, but they had to touch the U.S. financial system um, only for an instant in something called correspondent banking transactions. But for a Venezuelan bank to send money to, in this case, it was some Swiss banks, um, they had to use banks in New York to process those transfers. And, um, and that was the basic background. So, the government alleged that those transactions violated the Iran sanctions regime, um, which is a very complicated set of regulations. But I think, you know, for our purposes can be boiled down as as prohibiting uh, exports from the United States to Iran. Uh, you know, they've been in place for decades. And the government alleged that the prohibited exports in our case were these um, financial services provided by the U.S. banks. So this instantaneous clearing of money uh, was deemed a service, and uh, they alleged that it was being provided to Iran, even though no money went to Iran, um, it went to Swiss bank accounts, because their theory was that our client um, was receiving this money on behalf of an Iranian company, his father's company, uh, or an Iranian individual, his father. And under the government's legal theory, that was enough for these to be exports to Iran. It's a fairly novel concept. Um, that um, got charged in uh, in six counts in our federal indictment. 
there was a conspiracy called a Klein conspiracy to defraud the United States. And the government alleged that um, this conduct defrauded um, OFAC, which is an abbreviation um, for the agency that administers the sanctions program. Uh, they alleged that, the, that OFAC was defrauded and unable to do its job by this conduct. Um, they alleged a, a conspiracy to violate the sanctions regime itself, and then some derivative bank fraud and money laundering charges. And they all um, related to the underlying claim that the sanctions were violated. So he's charged with these uh, violations. Um, the construction you mentioned that's happening in Venezuela, you say all occurs. Um, so there's real construction done, real payments done. The the violation is is um, that it goes through U.S. banks ultimately for um, the benefit of of uh, uh, violation of the of the sanctions. No, of the sanctions act. Correct. Yeah, for the benefit of an Iranian company. And, and I mean to put it another way, if if they had been paid in euros, say instead of U.S. dollars, uh, we wouldn't be here. There would have been no. No case. And in fact, they were paid in euros for a portion of the of the proceeds, but it was because they were paid in U.S. dollars. Um, those were deemed prohibited exports. And, you know, the government's theory was that our client, Ali Sadr, who was in charge of the finances, took steps to basically scrub the word Iran from any of the paperwork associated with these transactions. So, you know, the invoices that got provided to the bank to be paid um, had all references to Iran removed. The um, name of the company, which I mentioned at the outset, was the Iranian International Housing Corporation, not a great name um, to do international business with, was abbreviated uh, to its initials, IIHC, or they called it ICO. Um, and so the paperwork was changed in, in that abbreviated manner. And they said that reflected consciousness on his part of, of wrongdoing, that he knew it was improper for um, these transactions to occur because of their Iranian connection, and that by engaging in that conduct, he exposed the banks to risk of harm. Um, they claimed because their theory was that this was a strict, strict liability sanctions regime. And then they also said, as I, as I mentioned, that OFAC was defrauded. Um, we had a, you know, a different theory, obviously, um, but the facts we largely didn't contest. You know, there, there really was no dispute. There, there was an effort through emails and, and the documents who were admitted at trial to remove the word Iran from uh, these transactions. But our client's perspective was that was done um, to combat a phenomenon uh, known as de-risking, where banks um, that have been so heavily re regulated by these sanctions regimes um, were effectively no longer willing to do any business that uh, was associated with Iran in any way. Uh, meaning, you know, even for a purely legal transaction, like a, a transaction involving an Iranian American, if the paperwork or the name was too Iran sounding, um, banks had flags that would hold up these transactions and uh, they wouldn't process them until there was an investigation done. And so this was effectively a way to, you know, get um, the transactions processed. He believed they were legal. Um, he had a different view of the sanctions as not applying to private activity outside of Iran where no money um, was going back to Iran. And it was essentially a debate about what his intent was and why he uh, engaged in the conduct that, again, was largely undisputed. So in a case like this, I mean, it's a nonviolent offense, obviously. It's a complicated set of facts, but it's it's 
at the end of the day, as you say, comes down to his intent. Um, there's no issue of danger to the community, um, but but they end up, from what I read, arresting him and and seeking his detention. Can you tell us a little about what what happened there? Yeah, so this was um, one of those scenarios where he did not know he was under investigation. Um, the government did not surface at any point in time. And so he was in, um, in D.C. You know, he lived in the U.S., even though he was born in Iran. And he was boarding a flight to London with his mother, got pulled out of line and arrested on the spot. Um, it came as a complete shock to him, uh, was detained in Virginia and then transported to New York. And the government fought for the better part of uh, two and a half, three months to keep him behind bars. But ultimately, he was able to get bond. Uh, and, you know, he had to he had to post a very substantial package of, um, you know, people who pledged their property and life savings to get him out. But uh, thank goodness he got out uh, because it was critical to his ability to defend himself at trial. I mean, one of the things that we've talked about in class is is when folks are detained, it is so much harder to defend a case, especially, by the way, in the Southern District of New York, the, the conditions of those of those jails are just awful. But can you so so do you agree with that? I mean, why is it so important for folks like Sauter to get out uh, in a case like this to be able to fight it? I mean, you know, um, for any number of reasons. But in this case, you know, the case was all about documents. Um, there were a lot of emails. There were a lot of records. You know, it's very hard to review the discovery when you're incarcerated. Um, it's even harder to meet with your lawyers, as we'll get into. You know, Ali testified in his own defense and. Uh, it would have been extremely difficult to prepare him in the way we did uh, if he were behind bars. When we got close to trial, you know, he essentially got an office in our building. Um, you know, he became part of the team. He worked with us. This was his full-time job for the better part of the two months leading up to trial. And we just would not have had the same access to him if he was behind bars. It would have been a, a real uh, difficulty getting prepared. And tell us a little about him. How old a guy? Was he married? To kid? You know, what, what, tell us a little about the guy. Yeah, so a very interesting life story. Um, he was born in Tehran, in Iran, the year after the Iranian Revolution. So I think the Iranian Revolution was 1979. Uh, he was born a year later and spent his youth in Iran. Um, his father had a difficult, you know, uh, dealings with the government, was in and out of prison for essentially being pro-Western and not supportive of the, um, of the religious, you know, government that was in place in Iran. But, um, but Ali, you know, grew up in that environment. Um, his family immigrated to the United States in his teenage years. Um, everyone with the exception of his father. Uh, but he came over around the age of 18 and went to college in the U.S., um, ultimately graduated from Cornell, you know, planned to live a life in the U.S. Um, that's where he wanted to be. And, and through a, a complicated story, um, his immigration status got disrupted because of, um, you know, uh, an attorney he was working with to get his citizenship um, engaged in some wrongdoing, not related to him, but it led to her cases being unraveled. And because of that, he was required to leave the United States in order to avoid being in a situation where he had sort of overstayed a visa and wouldn't be able to gain citizenship. And that's the time period when he worked on this project for his father and the Iranian company um, in Venezuela. So um, an interesting background for sure. It's interesting, right? Because <clears throat> just to skip ahead to openings for a moment, I mean, the government always tries to paint our clients in the worst possible way. We try to paint them in the best possible way. 
I saw an opening, you all talked about his pro-United States, pro-West view on things, and there were lots of objections over, over and over again. Um, what was going on there? Was, did the judge allow it, and, and how important is it to get that kind of stuff out before a jury? Yeah. Well, by the way, is the audio any better for you, David? Are you? Yeah. 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 It is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No no problem. Um, We thought it was really important, and you know, we we um, so our our opening statement was um, a little different than some uh, you know are because we had a good idea that our client was going to testify, and so we you know went it went into a lot of his life story and details that um, we would really almost never have been able to prove if he didn't testify. And that was a risk we took at the outset because you never know for sure until you get to the end um, of the government's case, whether you're going to put your client on. But we thought it was important to humanize him. I think people have such preconceived notions of Iran, you know, um, that it was important to try to um, give his life story to the jury, make it clear that, you know, he was really um, not affiliated with Iran other than having been born there. He was, he was very anti the Iranian government which, you know, from our perspective was also relevant because the sanctions, you know, are in place to um, effectively to hurt the Iranian government. And, you know, people who get around the sanctions in a normal case are trying to do so to benefit, you know, the Iranian government, perhaps to get munitions to Iran or prohibited technology to Iran. And that was so not the situation here. And we wanted it uh, to be known to the jury that, you know, he was really pro-Western and growing up, um, lived in fear of the Iranian government and couldn't wait to get out. Um, I saw there's reference to his father as the Bill Gates of, um, of Iran. Was, was the government allowed to say that and get into how wealthy um, your client was and the family was? They, they weren't allowed. Uh, they did not say or portray him as the Bill Gates of Iran, which is not accurate. But, um, you know, he, he was a successful businessman. And what they did get into, um, you know, he had a substantial ownership in maybe the largest private bank in Iran. And through that, um, it was marginally relevant to the case that they definitely tried to portray Ali as sort of coming from a wealthy family uh, and, and having a privileged upbringing. In the end, I don't think it really resonated when, his, when the full story of his life got out, um, particularly you know the fact that his father was in and out of some of Iran's notorious prisons for being essentially a political dissident. So it, it didn't really work, but they tried. Yeah. Um, and I saw also that it wasn't just the su- Southern District of New York who was involved in the case, but the state authorities of New York. Um, what was going on there? How did they get involved in the case and what was their role uh, in the prosecution? So the Manhattan DA's office was the original investigating uh, law enforcement agency. Yeah. They obtained the search warrants for a client's email that proved to be the, um, you know, the majority of the evidence. They used at trial. And then, you know, after uh, two or three years of investigation, they referred the matter to the U.S. Attorney's Office and the lead prosecutor from the Manhattan DA's office was designated a special AUSA for purposes of our trial. So um, he was an integral part of the team. Uh, It became relevant when there were discovery problems down the road, as I'm sure we'll get into, um, that the original investigative activity was not being conducted by the feds. And and it led to some real communication problems about what happened early in the case. All right. So, so let's get fast forward to right before trial. Um, you know, I, if this was a civil case, a civil dispute, you'd be taking depositions. 
you'd have a full witness list, you'd know every exhibit and have it categorized and in binders, uh, and there'd be so much lead up with the discovery. Um, we've talked a little in our, in our class about how federal criminal discovery works, uh, especially in the Southern District of New York. I mean, do you have a witness list? When do you get uh, the witness statements, what we call Jenks material, exhibit list? How does that work in New York? You know, um, it was one of my real frustrations with the case, and um, and I have experienced this, this in New York and elsewhere too, but uh, we got all that material very late in the day. So I think we got the government's witness list somewhere around 10 days before trial. And even then, uh, they convinced the judge to allow them to disclose it, essentially attorney's eyes only. Uh, they, uh, you know, conditioned the disclosure 10 days out on us not providing the witnesses to our client for another, I think, five days or so. And their stated reason for that is that some of the witnesses were concerned for their safety, which we thought was just absolutely preposterous. You know, our client um, was as white collar a guy as you can get. He was a businessman. This case was not about the cartel or any other violent activity. It was it was a pretense, uh, frankly. And, um, I, you know, in my view, it was done purely for tactical advantage. But you know, that's um, that, that's how that went. We we got the witness statements, I think, about a week before trial. So the 302s, um, you know, of the of the witnesses who were on the government's list were you know, a few days after we got the list itself. As you know, you know, I, I mean, we had probably a year to prepare for trial. And then there's this mad flurry of activity uh, in the last week before trial. And, and when you get those witness statements, sometimes things dramatically change. In, in the late stages of your preparation. Yeah, and so everybody knows um, when, when the lawyers say things like 302s, that's just a report that the FBI uses. It's on a form, it's called a form 302. So we all call it uh, when you, you know, the 302s are disclosed, it just means the interview uh, report of the witness. Um, by the way, um, which is not recorded, it's just a summary that the FBI agent writes down of what the witness says, and many times we get these reports and we'll go talk to a witness if they'll speak to us and they'll say, you know, that that is nothing like what I actually said. And yet um, they don't record these interviews, which I've always found really weird. I, I, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, you, and often the 302 um, doesn't match the underlying notes, which sometimes you get, sometimes you don't. And in rare cases, you do get a recorded interview, and we got one in this case, um, actually after trial. And boy, the recorded interview did not resemble the notes or the 302 in very meaningful ways. Yeah, I, I saw that, and we're going to talk about those that, that discovery stuff in a moment. But I was surprised that there was a recording. Was that done by the by the state folks or by the feds? You know, the so that interview took place in Canada, and. Uh -huh. I think it was maybe a Canadian Mounties requirement right. or something. Right. Uh, it was a joint interview. So, yeah, I don't think it would have happened if the interview was at the FBI offices in New York. So headed into trial, um, do you ha have you guys made a decision that your client's going to testify or is still really up in the air? We were certainly leaning heavily that way. And in part, um, it's because we knew, you know, the case would be a heavy document case and we had a real difficulty getting relevant fact witnesses to the United States. You know, the people mm -hmm. who, who worked on the project, um, some of them were Iranian and worked for this Iranian company. We had really no way to compel them to come here. And, and even, you know, even if we had, and we did have some friendly witnesses, they were terrified. 
of coming to the U.S. for fear that they'd wind up in the same place our client did. So, you know, we knew we wouldn't have them. Um, there were other relevant witnesses who worked in Venezuela, similar problems. You know, we, we just had no real way to get them. So short of character witnesses, and we had some experts who we also, had, you know, sort of lined up in the bullpen. Um, we knew our client would probably have to carry most of the water for us. And, and I don't know if you can, you can speak to this, but, you know, when I have a client that's thinking about testifying, we do tons of mock uh, cross-examinations and direct. Some, you know, informally in the office where the secretaries come and watch and some formal where we hire, you know, a jury consultant to bring potential jurors and, and, uh, and give us their feedback. Did you guys do a lot of those focus groups and mocks with him? So not, not in the formal way that you mentioned. You know, um, Reed and I just have not had a ton of great experience with jury consultants. Um, but, you know, we, we have found valuable bringing in, you know, staff from the office, um, uh, sometimes family, friends, non-lawyers, you know, to see if, uh, see if it resonates and it makes sense. And so we did a fair amount of that. Um, we also, you know, one thing that I think is critically important is the lawyer who's going to put the client on the stand. Um, which in this case turned out to be me, uh, you know, has to develop a, a rapport. You have to have ultimate trust there. Um, you can't do the mock examination of your client, you know? Um, and so we, we always- The mock cross, the, the mock cross. Right? The mock cross, so you have yeah. spoke, the mock cross. So, you know, we had younger lawyers on the team. Some of them took a crack at it. Um, you know, we brought in some folks who weren't on the team, but kind of gave them a mini tutorial and- just like different styles, because, you know, this was a large team of prosecutors. We didn't know who would be doing the cross-examination and we wanted them to be prepared for anything. So yeah, we did work at it um, in the lead up to trial. It is funny you mentioned that about doing the uh, mock cross um, because if the person who does the direct, um, it is very hard on them. It's really hard for the team to do the cross, right? Because you, you get yourself in a position to, to hurt uh, the person on, on cross. And, and it, it is difficult, I think, to do that. And it sets up weird dynamics with the client. I totally agree. And that's why, you know, in the main, we, we would bring in outsiders, you know, fellow lawyers at the firm, but people who weren't uh, core members of the team. Because, yeah, you don't, you just don't want to lose that trust. And, and we all believed in Ali and, you know, didn't relish the opportunity of taking shots at him in a mock cross. So I read, I read the examination, both the direct and the cross, and, and it's really fascinating, right? Because it was an email case. What did these emails mean? You guys explain the emails, um, both in your opening and in the direct, but then the cross comes around and there's not one question about the emails. I found it really bizarre, the, the theory of the cross there. I totally agree. I mean, there are a couple of odd things about the cross. Number one, um, halfway through the direct examination, they, they switched prosecutors or appeared to. Um, you know, one of the prosecutors was doing the objecting while I began my direct examination and sort of partway through, it told the judge, you know, the, the other prosecutor is going to step in and take over. And I don't know why that happened, uh, to be honest with you, but the guy who, who wound up doing the cross was the, was the DA, the special assistant and probably had the most historical knowledge of the case. But, you know, any defense attorney will tell you that moment when you turn over your client for cross-examination in a criminal trial is sort of the magic moment. You're on the edge of your seat. You're terrified. You know, the, the trial has a chance to go completely um, downhill if your client doesn't hold up and do well. And um, you're holding your breath. And I have to say, um, 
as the prosecutor started getting into it, you know, he brought up a lot of peripheral points right. in right. which he was trying to, you know, establish that our client had made misstatements in other contexts, which, you know, I, I don't think he had, um, but he never got to the meat of this case. Um, he never asked him or challenged his explanation of the emails that they relied on. And the cross-examination, you know, I want to say the direct was about a day and a half, and the cross was maybe an hour and a half. Um, yeah. And when he sat down, we were um, both surprised and very relieved. I bet. Um, one, one of the things they wanted to get into was an issue you mentioned before about the immigration lawyer who had those issues. And there was a bunch of back and forth about whether the, the government should be able to ask him about the immigration lawyer. What, what happened with that? You know, in the end, um, they tried. Um, yeah. I think, um, you know, they're, they're, the point they were trying to make is, um, you know, Ali had submitted an affidavit with one of the immigration filings explaining why he had left the country when he did. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was in part due to financial circumstances and in part due to the issue I mentioned that if he didn't leave, he wouldn't be able to come back um, or be perhaps viewed as overstaying his welcome. They picked on a small part of the affidavit and thought that he had um, kind of mischaracterized the reasoning in his testimony at trial. But on you know redirect, we were able to establish that it was just sort of in another part of the affidavit, um, the explanation or the reason that he gave on his direct testimony at trial. So to me, it, it really sort of fizzled out for the government. And yeah. uh, but but they were allowed to do it. I mean, the judge you know uh, gave them the opportunity to get into it. So let's let's turn to what I find the most interesting part of the case and the most troubling part of the case and, and what we're learning uh, in the class today, which is about this prosecutorial misconduct. So, you know, you get tons and tons of discovery. You get uh, thrown the witness uh, list and some of the exhibits right before trial in the jinx. And then in the middle of trial, um, you're given additional documents, um, one of which is this famous government exhibit 411. Um, so tell us a little what happens there and and what that exhibit is because I'll tell you just to just to set it up when I first read that exhibit I, I didn't see it as exculpatory and then of course I read your explanation of it and I saw it but initially I did not see it yeah well you, um, the prosecutor said they didn't either <laughs> yeah um, I, don't, I don't know how um, much I believe that but yeah um, you know so what happened uh, like in every criminal case, we'd asked for Brady as part of discovery. I'm sure your class knows what Brady is. Um, you know, the government's obligated to turn it over, turn over exculpatory evidence. And we got the rote response back, you know, with every letter we sent that, yes, we're aware of our Brady obligations. Uh, we're, we're not aware of any in existence. If we come upon any, we'll provide it to you. So we didn't get any. Frustrating. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, ju and judges, in my experience, typically, um, you know, defer to those sort of representations from prosecutors. Yeah. Uh, and so we had um, no Brady disclosed prior to trial, period. Um, and uh, so after the first week of trial, we're, uh, you know, preparing. The government was about to rest its case on Monday. We're preparing for the week ahead to put on our defense case. And on the you know Saturday afternoon, we got an email from the government and it had about, you know, 12 bullet points of information. Um, they were providing a series of exhibits. They were asking us to sort of agree to authenticity. And, and they attached them. And one of them, you know, as we went through the email, was a document none of us had recalled seeing before. And, um, you know, I have to tell you, at first, I was panicked that 
did we somehow miss this in the discovery? <laughs> right, um, right. You know, uh, because yeah. it, you know, it just sort of jumped off the page of us as to how relevant it was. Well, it turns out we hadn't. Um, it was the first time they disclosed it, even though they didn't say so in the transmittal letter. And um, I'll, I'll describe it for you briefly and why we thought it was so important. So um, I told you the case was all about these wire transfers. So um, the very first wire transfer in the case, uh, $29 million transfer for the construction services, was routed through a, a correspondent bank known as Commerce Bank. They were the U.S. bank that was alleged to have exported the services. And about a month after the payment was processed, that bank, which was undergoing a you know sanctions investigation, um, through some means we never were exactly sure how, uh, detected some issues with this transaction, and they did a little investigation and determined that the payment was made to a company, um, you know, Ali's company, which was called Stratus, um, in Switzerland, that appeared to resemble a similar um, company in Iran that had the same name. Stratus Construction Company. It was an affiliate of the of the company that uh, had had the contract, and so they did some Google research and um, identified that this Iranian company was engaged in the construction in Venezuela. And so they wrote a letter to OFAC, laying out these facts and saying, "We're not sure that this is a violation. We want to make sure you're aware of it. We've detected it. Um, you know, the transaction's already been processed, but just sort of FYI, this transaction may have an Iranian connection." Um, well, OFAC did nothing. Um, mm -hmm. They did not open an investigation. They didn't block the transaction or try to claw it back. They didn't notify any of the companies that um, this might be a sanctions violation. And so from our point of view, the way it was exculpatory is it was, it was really contrary to the government's theory that if OFAC had only known about the right. Iranian connection, um, it would have enforced the sanctions. It would have declared there to be a violation. It might even have gone after the banks for processing these transactions. Well, it turned out they were apprised of exactly that conduct and they did nothing. And that's what, you know, from our point of view, is so exculpatory about the document. And, and we immediately jumped on it and asked the government, you know, sort of what the heck is this and where did it come from? And that led to a, a series of events that really turned the case around. Let's, let's start with the initial disclosure, though, because... It it turns out later the judge orders, you know, um, communications and other things to be turned over and affidavits to be produced. And, and you all learn that there are text messages between the prosecutors about how to produce this document now that they realize it hadn't been produced. And, and one of the prosecutors, I mean, it's amazing, um, writes that they need to bury it. Um, when you saw that text, you must have, I mean, how did you react to that? It's crazy. Yeah, well, so, you know, so to be clear, we didn't learn that information until well after the trial. Right. Um, but when we finally did, and what, what David's talking about is, um, you know, we got that document from the government on Saturday afternoon. Well, what their um, internal messages showed, and, and they ultimately had to file declarations with the court explaining their conduct, um, they discovered the document on Friday night. And one of the prosecutors um, looked at it and said, you know, I'm not sure whether we produced this. They figured out they hadn't. And in a text message from one prosecutor to the other said, you know, essentially, I'm not sure what we should do here. We may want to use this document to travel. We haven't turned it over. The other one responded, well, why don't we just turn it over now? And maybe we'll, you know, the judge will allow us to use it. To which the, um, the first prosecutor said, well, I actually think 
why don't we try to bury it in some other documents we're providing tomorrow? Um, and um, her colleague responded, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a, a direct quote. Maybe we should bury it in some documents we're providing tomorrow. And the other prosecutor didn't respond. Are you kidding me? That would be a, a crime or obstruction or at, at, uh, <laughs> at least an ethical violation. Um, she said, yeah, that's fine, too. We can we can throw it in with. And then she identified some documents they're going to provide to us tomorrow. And that's exactly what happened. You know, as I mentioned, we got an email on, Friday, on Saturday afternoon, didn't identify that this was a document that hadn't been disclosed before, didn't identify that it was exculpatory. Um, it was just in a laundry list of other, you know, trial housekeeping matters as a sort of new exhibit they wanted us to stipulate the authenticity about. And it gets worse from there, really, unbelievably. It's hard to imagine things could get worse, but it gets worse because then you, you guys jump up and down as you rightfully should with the judge and the judge orders the government to file um, something explaining themselves. What, what happens there? Yeah, so on that Saturday afternoon, um, or it could have been Sunday morning by the time we filed something with the judge, but we, we basically said to the judge, we think there's been a Brady violation here. Uh, we want relief. You know, we proposed a kind of instruction and stipulation. We didn't know the full scope of the issues then. Um, and uh, the court immediately, you know, this is a Sunday, issued an order saying, government, I want you to explain uh, to me uh, the circumstances behind this document and when you disclosed to the defense that it was a newly uh, discovered document. And I think the order, you know, came out in the afternoon. She gave them a couple of hours and they filed a letter. Um, and the letter was somewhat vague about the, the circumstances and the court wasn't satisfied. And within 30 minutes of, of that letter being filed, uh, the court issued another order. And it was now about 8.30 at night on Sunday. And she said, by 10 o'clock, I want you to answer this very specific question. Um, you know, when did you tell, when and how did you tell the defense this was a newly discovered document? And they filed another letter at, you know, 9.59. Um, on the, you know, on the time they had to file it. And it again, wasn't clear. It said, um, we advised the defense, this was a newly marked exhibit Saturday afternoon in this email, blah, blah, blah. They, essentially, they ducked the question, um, which the court explained later, she actually um, didn't appreciate that in real time. And she thought what they were saying was, yeah, we told the defense on Saturday afternoon that it was a new document. She misapprehended their letter, um, and it turned out that that's not, um, you know, what they had represented. And in fact, an early draft of the letter um, said, we didn't tell the defense it was a newly disclosed document. Well, that had been redlined out minutes before filing. Language changed to what ultimately got on the docket. And, you know, later, only well after the trial, we got all these internal communications about the flurry of activity um, before that filing occurred and the red line and everything else. And it was, it was wild, I have to say. I mean, it, not only do they change it to mislead the judge, but some of the supervisors you later find out, you know, are communicating about this and, and they come out and say, you know, we lied. Well, that was, um, you know, part of what the judge ordered in, um, you know, again, post-trial after it all, um, came out, uh, she wanted a detailed explanation of, of sort of what happened, how the, in particular, how this letter was drafted. And she wanted them to disclose all communications, uh, internal communications related to it. So we got text messages from one supervisor to another, uh, a line attorney to a supervisor, all of their emails. 
And what you're referring to is, yeah, after, um, you know, the, the letter was sent and, you know, they sort of had time to reflect on it. One supervisor wrote to the other, we lied in that letter. Um, it's crazy. We lied in that letter. And in, and in another exchange, one of them said, we've done some really aggressive things here. I think there's going to be a mistrial. Um, yeah. Some aggressive things is a, is a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I guess I'm jumping ahead too quickly. So, so in the trial itself, you obviously don't have all these things. You get the exhibit, you make use of the exhibit. Um, by the way, this is in March of 2020, um, right when COVID is starting to explode. You're absolutely right. And we were in Manhattan, which was sort of the original epicenter. You know, you know how it is during a trial. Um, I was completely consumed with the work. You know, the trial right. began began on March 1st. Um, I'm working, you know, 20-hour uh, days. And um, there's this thing going on in the background, you know, but I, I had no real focus on the details. The thing that really brought it home in the second week of trial, it was a two-week trial. I'm sure you all remember this. It was the week that the NBA shut down its regular season. Um which was, uh, you know, obviously other things were happening, but that was a big, you know, dramatic step. And soon thereafter, things started shutting rapidly. Schools started closing. Um, and we still had a few days left in our trial. And we had some issues come up, um, you know, with, with jury deliberations that I'm happy to go into. Yeah. Tell us. Uh, so, so, you know, you're closing while the NBA is shutting down um, and, and the jury goes out. I mean, obviously, nobody's wearing masks. Nobody's it's not we're not there yet. No. Um, and so so what happens? How, how does it how does it proceed? So I think we finished closings and the jury instructions on a Thursday, like midday Thursday. Uh, jury got the case on Thursday afternoon, didn't reach a verdict that night and came back on Friday. We were convinced that if we didn't get a jury verdict by Friday night, they were not going to make it back on Monday. I mean, it, right. re it really had that feel. Everything was closing down. And so we urged the judge. You know, can you ask them if they'll stay late on Friday night? Um, can you encourage them to come in on Saturday morning? And, you know, she deferred. She said they, it's their show now. They get to do what they want, and they chose not to do so. And so Monday morning rolled around, and, um, you know, sure enough, we got a call from the judge's clerk, and she said two of the jurors have called in sick with COVID-like oh symptoms. God. And we had the judge had already excused the alternates. So we're literally in the cab to the courthouse. Um, you know, the clerk says, we need to make a very quick decision about how you want to proceed. We get in and learn that one of the jurors is just out. She's not coming back, um, whether she had COVID or not, unclear, but she was too sick and unwilling to continue forward. And the court wasn't going to make her. So, so we're down, down to 11. We're down to 11. And under the federal rules, you know, a judge can require uh, a jury to, to deliberate with 11, even if the defendant objects, um, but only with 11. You know, you can't get down to 10 without consent from the defendant. So the 10th juror um, reported that, you know, it was really a family member who had been exposed. He was quite nervous, but he felt OK himself. And while he wasn't willing to come back in person, he'd be willing to deliberate by FaceTime. Now, this is before Zoom and everything right. exploded. Right? Um, right. So literally, he was talking about FaceTime on his iPhone. And, and the judge put it to us, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, the, the jurors had all arrived. Your defense, what do you want to do? Do you want to proceed? Are you willing to consent to 10 jurors, one of whom participating by FaceTime? It's crazy. And we had about five minutes to make this decision. Um, you know, had we objected, we had a guaranteed mistrial, right? I mean, she couldn't force him to go forward. 
but from our point of view, the trial had gone exceedingly well. You know, the client um, we thought had done an excellent job uh, in his testimony. You know, the prosecutors didn't touch him on cross. We were really worried that, you know, if we if we took the mistrial, um, who knows when we'd be able to get the trial, you know, done and back in court. And in the meantime, you know, the prosecutors would have a year or so to just chew on his transcript and, you know, be much more prepared the second time around. So we decided we were willing to go ahead um, and allow the jury to proceed in this manner. And to our surprise, the government moved for a mistrial. Um, you know, they said on the spot, Judge, we're not willing to go forward. Or, well, we object to going forward. Um, we think you should declare a mistrial. There's no precedent for any jury um, deliberation to occur by FaceTime. And the judge uh, denied their motion for mistrial, and they carried on that Monday and deliberated. And um, and about four in the afternoon, we got our verdict, and it was um, a crushing guilty on five of six counts. And as you can imagine, um, I think it was about the lowest feeling I've ever had as a lawyer because we had a guaranteed mistrial, um, and instead, and, and we were so confident in the result that we didn't see how we could lose, and they came back and convicted. Those are guilty verdicts are the hardest things to to deal with. I don't think people realize how difficult it is. There's there's it's 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 soul crushing, um, and and what you know there's so many judgment calls in a trial. One thing people don't realize is that, you know, even though mistrial keeps your guy out and, and saves, you know, a verdict, second trials are often much, much harder on the defendant than, than first trials for the reasons you say, right? They can prepare. They know the defense now. Uh, they know how to prepare for that cross. It wouldn't have been an hour and a half this time. The second time it would have gone on for days, probably. Uh, very yeah. difficult to do a second trial. Very difficult. And, you know, um, I mean, he wasn't of, of unlimited means. I mean, this, you know, as you know, trials are expensive, but really the overriding concern was we were just convinced that it wasn't going to get in any better than this. And and we thought um, we were in the driver's seat. We really thought we were going to win. So, um, yeah, just soul crushing, you know, to get that result. Okay. But you don't give up. Um, you keep fighting and things cut your way. Tell us what happens after the trial. Yeah. So, you know, Reed Weingarten and I uh, <laughs> piled in the car, drove back to D.C., um, a lot of soul searching on that trip back. Um, but, you know, Monday rolled around. Um, and after we we uh, sort of thought about it, dusted ourselves off, you know, we said, what happened during the trial with the disclosure of this Brady information was unusual. And even in in real time, you know, the court made a couple of statements like this. This feels like the tip of the iceberg. Um and so, um, you know, we said, let's see if there's anything more out there. And we renewed all of our Brady requests that we had made before trial. Um, you know, in particular, one of the things that we had asked for but didn't receive was that recording of the witness interview that took place in Canada about a month before trial. You know, the, the party line we got before trial was, oh, there's a diplomatic process. Um, we don't have it yet. Um, you'll get it when we get it. Well, in the press of, you know, the trial preparation and the trial, we never got it. Um, we asked for that again after trial. And that was the first big break we got. Um, it turned out the government had received that recording and it had received it three weeks before trial, but didn't turn it over through a miscommunication between the FBI and the prosecutors. And, um, and that was the first bit of information we got post trial. And, uh, 
you know, it was filled with exculpatory information. Um, the recording of the interview, in, in our um, opinion, was dramatically different than the notes and the FBI memorandum summarizing the interview. And we didn't have that stuff before trial. Um, and that was sort of the first of this snowball of, of evidence um, we got rolled out from the prosecutors. All told, I think we got 12 different productions of documents after trial in a host of different categories um, filled with exculpatory information. It was it's remarkable. Cra it's crazy, right? Because in these white collar cases, you know, my experience is the government dumps terabytes of stuff on you. Um, and yet when you go to trial, there's always these weird disclosures, um, either right before, during, or after trial. It's like, how does this happen? Uh, you know, I wish I could tell you, David, it, it, um, it was um, astonishing. I've never experienced anything like it. You know, um, at, at best, giving them the benefit of the doubt, there just was no communication between the FBI and the prosecutors. Um, and uh, it led to, you know, significant categories of information not being provided. But, you know, looking at it the other way, at worst, I suppose, but we learned after trial that there were some specific categories of evidence that they affirmatively discussed, even, you know, in, in messages between themselves, hey, this might be Brady. Maybe we should talk with a supervisor about it. And they didn't. And we didn't get it until after trial. You know, I always laugh when, when there's a discussion about whether maybe we should turn it over or maybe we should talk about it. Like, I don't understand just not turning it over. But um, so so you you prepare an unbelievable monster motion, uh, 100 plus pages um, to the judge. What happens after you file that motion? Yeah. So, you know, um, we had gotten the bulk of these post-trial productions, not all, but a lot of them before our deadline to file. Um, there was a motion for judgment of acquittal or in the alternative, a new trial, which is a, a, a typical post-trial motion you file when you've uh, when your client's been um, you know, found guilty at trial. And uh, as David said, it was a yeah, it was a long one. It was I think it was 175 pages. Um, we thought that there were real grounds for just straight up acquittal, that the evidence wasn't sufficient. But the bulk of it focused on um, these series of, in our view, Brady violations that were material to the outcome of the trial. And we argued, had we known of them um, in advance of the trial or even during the trial, the outcome would have been different. And just you know, sort of one argument that we thought was about as straightforward as you can get um, is we had the ability to get a guaranteed mistrial, right? Um, yeah. And had we known that there was this cache of evidence out there that we'd never been provided and that was exculpatory, um, we would have taken the mistrial and used that evidence at a new trial. And, and so we thought that that, you know, if nothing else, was a pretty clear way to establish that the outcome of the trial would have been different. Uh, so we filed a motion and we're moving toward the government's deadline. Uh, you know, and, and I recall this as distinctly as, as almost anything in my career. On the day the government's opposition was due, we'd had no negotiations with them, no discussion whatsoever. I got a call from the two supervisors on the case, and they said, um, we've made the decision to dismiss the case with prejudice, and we're not going to further prosecute. We're not going to file an opposition to your motion. Um, I was astonished. Um, 
you know, in my experience, um, that's never happened after the government has obtained, you know, a conviction at trial to essentially throw in the towel, um, you know, at that at that phase of the case. And um, on the one hand, I was overjoyed, you know, for for the outcome for my client. Um, but on the other, I, I thought, you know, that there has to be something here that right. we haven't that we haven't seen yet. You know, we'd seen a lot of exculpatory evidence for sure. But some of these details that we've been discussing hadn't come out yet. And part of me was, you know, what is motivating this? What else must be out there um, to cause the government to do this? And, you know, after that phone call, um, the U.S. attorney at the time, Jeffrey Berman, wrote a letter to the court and said the government had decided in the, quote, interests of justice that it no longer wanted to prosecute the case. And they requested something that I hadn't really heard of before. Um, called a nolly prosequi, which is a Latin term um, uh, for dropping a case. And, and we wound up having a little bit of a fight about that um, mm-hmm. because technically that would have allowed the government in the future to maybe revive the case. We wanted it clear that our motion was meritorious. Um, and, and, you know, in our view, the procedural outcome was clear. The judge needed to vacate the verdict, you know, um, state affirmatively that it was null and void, there'd been no judgment of conviction in the case, grant a new trial, and then dismiss the case with prejudice. And um, and ultimately, that's exactly what the judge did. Uh, we got an order that said all of those things. We modeled it on the order that was in the Senator Ted Stevens case, right. um, you know, and our friends over at Williams and Connolly who tried that case, and, um, and, and got that outcome for our client, which ended the case for him Although, you know, matters uh, proceeded before the court. Right. So, so it's interesting because the case ends, um, the case against your client is over, but yet the judge says, it's not over for me. I want to keep looking at, into what happened. Um, do you take a position on that with the court or, or how does that work with, with your interests at that point? She asked both sides for their position. Um, and we did take a we did take a position. We we um, opined that she had the ability under her supervisory authority to continue investigating what happened here. The reason we did that, you know, we wanted the case to be over and dismissed for our client. And I, I, we were fearful that if she concluded that she wouldn't have the authority to continue investigating what what happened here, she might just sort of hold it open um, and not dismiss the case until she concluded all these various inquiries that she had in mind, which, you know, wouldn't have been a disaster if we knew the dismissal was coming, but our client was ready to move on with his life and, um, you know, wanted the certainty that it was over and could never come back. So she keeps investigating. She has the prosecutor's file affidavits. You get all the internal communications. I mean, it's, it's really incredible what's produced. And, and uh, I've, I've given the students the, the orders, uh, which detail a lot of that. Um, but at the end of the day, she doesn't find intentional misconduct, which I found really odd. Um, and she doesn't conduct a hearing. She just sort of takes the affidavits at face value and then says, okay, um, a lot of bad stuff happened here, but I'm not going to find it intentional. Of course, it, it always strikes me as so odd because had the same thing our clients been accused of the same thing, uh, and the emails were there. Prosecutors would be quick to indict, charge, take it to a jury, and say uh, the client's guilty. If we had done it, I mean, forget it. We'd be in bar, you know, behind bars. 
Um, but the judge gave them the benefit of the doubt. Is that, I mean, how do you feel about that? I have complicated feelings to, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't want anything bad personally to happen to these prosecutors. I don't, I don't, you know, we're softies. We're, this is the problem, Brian. We're softies. That may be, that may be the case. I mean, um, but I did feel like there was some really serious misconduct here. Um, and that, you know, but for the grace of God that we, you know, got this mid trial disclosure, this could have all gone unknown to us. Um, and, you know, our client would be um, serving a very long sentence right now. You know, some of what we saw, it's hard for me to characterize as um, the, the byproduct of a mistake or uh, a misunderstanding or even negligence. Uh, you know, the, the, the notion of burying evidence. Um, yeah. Now, I suppose maybe where, where the court came out as well. Uh, even though that's what they said, we got the letter, we got it, you know, in time to use it. But I have to say, I've had this happen in other cases before. There is some law that it's not, quote unquote, a Brady violation if you receive it during trial. Um, you know, that is far too late to make effective use of exculpatory information. You right. can't you can't pivot on the last day of the government's case in chief and dramatically change your case theory. Um, the evidence would have devastated the government's expert from OFAC had we had it in our possession when he testified four days earlier. You, you just couldn't unwind the clock. And so, um, you know, that was a frustration. But as to her ultimate um, determination, you know, she referred a bunch of the issues to DOJ's um, ethics, you know, office, the Office of Professional OPR, whatever it stands for, responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about that process, although it's very opaque. Um, what she what she investigated herself was um, the circumstances behind this letter we've talked about. You know, the the 10 p.m. letter and how, um, in her view, the, the misrepresentation came about. And uh, um, she did ultimately conclude that there was not intentional misconduct or a, an intentional misrepresentation in that letter for very sort of technical reasons that, you know, that relate to the timeline and the flurry of activity that happened in that, um, in that last minute environment. Um, you know, but seems, seems like that letter was a lot worse than the emails that your client wrote. Um, you know, you, you mentioned OPR and, and that you referred it to OPR. That's the office of professional responsibility. It's sort of internal watchdog over DOJ. But, but the problem with OPR is they almost never do anything to their prosecutors. There's almost never any sanctions against them um, or any findings of misconduct. Have, have there been findings by OPR in your case? Well, um, not to our knowledge. Uh, right. So it, it has been um, over a year since the referral was made to OPR. Uh, OPR has not solicited any information from us. Uh, you know, defense counsel. Now, there's a lot in the public domain. Maybe they don't believe they need it. But um, yeah, I'm not aware of any public um, finding by OPR. Uh, I think there, you know, is sort of a mixed record. Sometimes they will make a public report if there is sufficient um, interest in the matter. That certainly would happen in the in the Ted Stevens case. But I think the norm is they they conduct these in reviews in yeah. secret. Um, and they don't disclose publicly the outcome. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure which route they're going to take here, but certainly nothing so far has happened, um, to, to my knowledge. 
And so, you know, when your client is charged and arrested, there's a big press release. Uh, the Southern District of New York is infamous for doing these uh, uh, big press conferences and releases when there's an arrest. When there's a conviction, they issue a release. Um, when are they going to issue the release now that there's been uh, a judgment of acquittal? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and uh, they did both of those things in our case, you know, splashy yeah. pl- press releases. When they, um, when they moved to dismiss the case, they did so on a Friday night in, um, you know, a one paragraph letter with no details as to why. You know, if the court had just let it go there, um, we, we wouldn't know a whole lot of the stuff that we're talking about now. Uh, you know, after they made that decision, to their credit, you know, those press releases were still out there on the on the Internet. And the first mm-hmm. thing that you found if you Googled Ali Sadr was the DOJ press releases. And um, at, at our request, they took them down. Um, OK, so that's something uh, they took them down. That's something. But there certainly was no press release, um, you know, accepting responsibility for any misconduct or the or the result in the case. And I don't expect that to ever occur. They didn't get the three points uh, for for accepting responsibility. So, so this has been really interesting. Um, I'm I'm interested to see what the students uh, have. Um, if you if you don't mind taking a couple questions from them, Brian. I just wanted to pause here for a second and cut in, and thank Brian for doing the episode and for speaking to my class at the University of Miami School of Law. Really great case, really sad in many ways with the misconduct and what happened with these prosecutors. But it truly happens so often and it needs to be exposed and discussed. Now, in the next portion of this episode, you'll hear the students' questions of Brian. uh, And after that, next week uh, or in two weeks, we'll be back with Judge Gleason, who was from the Eastern District of New York, and he'll talk about. Uh, what he's doing out in New York now. Thank you for listening. Here's a little bonus coverage from the class. Thanks. Um, My question is, other than going to OPR or hoping that the judge figures it out on on their own, is there another way that you can, if you don't want to, you know, put this person away for it, but just like get them disbarred for something like that? Like, how do you go about justice in that case? So I I think there were two routes we could have pursued. We ultimately chose not to. Um, One is there is a procedure under something known as the Hyde Act or Hyde Amendment to seek attorney's fees from the government when uh, a prosecution has been brought in bad faith and there's been government misconduct found. That wouldn't have required the actual prosecutors to pay out of their own pockets for Um, the attorney's fees, but it's such a uh, rare and sort of extreme relief that um, it can be a badge of dishonor. Frankly, we considered doing that. Um, We chose not to mainly because our client wanted to put this behind him. And as David knows, um, the law in the context of the Hyde Amendment is extremely difficult for the defense um, to obtain reimbursement of attorney's fees. But um, so that was one possibility that we we didn't pursue, but we contemplated. Um, and the other is the one you mentioned, you know, we we could have made a bar referral. Um, you know, we could have packaged up the information, wrote a letter and asked for, you know, the state bar to take action and investigate. Um, again, we chose not to do so. 
You know, we um, knew that that was a potential remedy the court was considering in this um, investigation after the fact. And we decided to leave it to her, um, you know, to determine if, if the facts merited a referral, largely for the same reasons. Um, our client wanted to put this matter behind him. And, you know, personally, um, I, I don't have any, you know, vendetta against these prosecutors. I don't want to see them um, suffer misfortune. You know, the facts are public. Um, if you read the judge's uh, final opinion, you know, the government had asked to keep all this information under seal, including the names of the attorneys. And the court said no. Um, you know, one way in which prosecutorial misconduct can be remedied is through sunshine, um, through letting the chips fall that where they may is on the public docket. And so the facts are out there. There's an enormous record publicly. And, um, you know, if any state bar chooses to investigate, they've got enough to do so. We decided um, it wasn't for us to, to make that referral. Brian, you know, it's interesting because in the second order that you mentioned, she does talk about Sunshine and name the prosecutors. In the first order, she does not. She refers to them as, you know, Prosecutor A and Prosecutor B, which when I was reading it, I was very surprised that she did it that way. Um, But there's this like instinct of judges to protect prosecutors, even when there's misconduct, um, which which is bizarre. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think until she was done with her review, um, you know, she was giving them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, So, in the first order, she did use, you know, anonymous type AUSA yeah. one terms, but um, uh, that you know, we briefed the issue f- related to the second order of whether this stuff could remain under seal or not. And a couple of news organizations that it moved to intervene to unseal. And, uh, you know, there's sort of a First Amendment open courts issue, uh, which, you know, I-, I think partially carried the day. But, uh, but what else carried the day and swayed the judge was her view that these facts should be um, out in the open. You know, when a defendant's prosecuted, um, right. all of his conduct is, you know, in open court and on the public docket. And why shouldn't we have similar uh, standards when, you know, the tables are turned a bit and we're looking at the conduct of the prosecutor? Right. We'll turn to Nicholas in one sec. But but when you mentioned the Hyde Amendment, I did give the students the Shagan case to read. Um, and, and, you know, that was a very difficult case because we did show, again, misconduct. Um, and... Even with that gross misconduct and the acquittal, the court found you can't get Hyde Amendment. So in civil cases, of course, the prevailing party gets attorney's fees almost all of the time. In a criminal case, even if you win, even if you show misconduct, you're not going to get fees. It's really, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I agree. All right, Nicholas, you're up. Sure. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the things that we've talked about in class a number of times is how especially in federal court, there's so few trials compared to how there used to be. Um, I, I know you said you're a trial lawyer, but I'm wondering how much, or I guess how steep a decline have you noticed in trials, especially working at a big firm? And you know, like how many do you tend to do in a year or how, how's that changed? How's that part of your practice changed? Yeah, look, it, um, I think David's right. There has been um, this sort of vanishing uh, criminal trial, a vanishing trial period. Um, uh, you know, I average roughly one trial a year or maybe one every 18 months. They tend to be bigger trials. Um, this was one of the shorter ones at two weeks that I've, that I've had. Um, but um, they are, you know, I think people would view our practices very um, heavily trial focused. Uh, 
And, you know, over the last um, 10 years, I've probably had a dozen trials, which feels like a lot um, at, a big, <laughs> yeah. at a big firm in a white collar practice, but it's nothing compared to sort of a public defender's docket. It's sort of how you look at it. Um, I mean, there are, we, we could have a whole other class on why there's been, um, you know, a vanishing trial. I have to tell you, in this case, um, the reason why it went to trial, you know, we actually thought we could have likely obtained a resolution that would, would lead to our client having to serve no more time in jail than the two and a half months, you know, he spent trying to get out on pretrial release. But um, he wanted and still wants to live out his days in the United States. He has a application for citizenship pending and any deal would have required him to admit to a felony. And he was not willing to do that. Um, you know, he didn't believe he had engaged in a felony and that would have disqualified him from becoming a U.S. citizen. And that was just a complete non-starter. So, um, you know, from the get-go, we knew we were going to have a trial and um, it made it, you know, a great matter to to work on and, and gear up for. That, that's one thing that we we have not talked about a lot in class are these collateral consequences to either a plea or a guilty verdict, which is, you know, if you're not a citizen deportation, if you're a lawyer losing your license, if you're uh, in the financial industry, not being able to uh, uh, trade and all these, there's lots of different consequences to uh, a conviction. Um, and sometimes those are the cases that end up going to trial where where folks just say, listen, it's too important to me. I had to have my license to not get deported, whatever it is. And so they're willing to take uh, a risk that they otherwise wouldn't take. Tori, you're up. Yeah. So I was wondering, obviously, in this case, um, the exculpatory evidence was actually handed over mid-trial. Um, is there anything, you know, obviously that doesn't always happen. And there are many times where exculpatory evidence doesn't come to light at all. Is there anything that defense lawyers can do to press prosecutors to turn over evidence? It's hard. Um, so, you know, one development that's occurred, and I don't know if you guys have talked about this in class yet, but um, there was a, an amendment to the federal rules of criminal procedure that was enacted not all that long ago, six months or so ago, maybe nine months ago now to require judges to enter orders at the outset of every criminal case um, uh, directing the government to produce Brady information. And you might think that's not a very significant advancement because, you know, the, the case law required them to produce this information. So what, what difference would it make if there's now an order in a criminal case? But, you know, it actually, um, there have been cases, including in the, in the Ted Stevens case, where um, there's been determinations after the fact where where, go where government lawyers haven't produced exculpatory evidence that there was no ability to impose a meaningful sanction because there wasn't an order in place requiring them to do so. Um, I think this new law actually presents opportunities for advocacy. You know, most courts so far have just entered a one-liner kind of, you know, government, you have an obligation to produce Brady material to the defense. But um, the opportunity for advocacy is to have an actual uh, Brady order that has some teeth to it. Um, explains, you know, what the Brady standard is in a defense-friendly way, directs the government, you know, where, what files they need to look at, what remedies will be imposed or sanctions will be imposed if they don't comply with Brady, um, provides a date, a deadline by which they have to produce Brady so it can't be dumped on the eve of trial. And I've had judges in cases even before this law was um, enacted impose such orders, and they have um, an impact, but it's the rare judge out there who has this kind of standing order 
uh, and uh, and we'll we'll impose it against the government. All too often, it's we trust our prosecutors; they know what the obligations are, and um, when they say there's no Brady, we're going to take their word for it. Corey, you're up. Hi, good evening. Thank you for being here with us tonight. This question um, relates to what Tori just asked in a way. And I know how you mentioned that the government didn't disclose any Brady material really beforehand until the 11th hour. But did you or your defense team have an inkling of sketchiness on the part of the prosecutors before that 11th hour ambiguous disclosure? And does misconduct like this sort of give you a sense to be more cautious in the future and more alert for future trials? So I would not say sketchiness. We had no, we had no, um, sense of, you know, ethical issues with the prosecutors. They were aggressive, um, like, you know, many prosecutors I've encountered in that district. But um, no, nothing really. The closest that um, we experienced before trial is, um, and this is a whole nother subject that would take too much time, but this sort of short version is we had extensive litigation about um, the email search warrants that were executed in the case. And, uh, and, and, and during that litigation, it came out, you know, sort of a year after discovery had closed that um, the prosecutors discovered a set of about another 300, 400 documents that they said had actually been seized during the email search warrants, but they hadn't previously realized it and hadn't disclosed them to us. So we didn't think that that was um, sort of an ethical situation. It was more of a, a negligence in their discovery obligations and, and a kind of miscommunication between the Manhattan DA's office, which was, you know, running these um, email reviews in the early days, and the prosecutors who later were handling the case. And one of the one of the issues the judge flagged in her order um, is, you know, there was a really large number of prosecutors who cycled through this case before we got to trial. I think 14 in total, um, you know, four wound up trying the case, but they were the third team of prosecutors. And, you know, they're it had a feeling of a little bit of, well, that wasn't my responsibility. That must have been, you know, the first prosecutor on the team or, uh, you know, the DA's office was responsible for doing that. Not me. I'm just here uh, to try the case. You know, I, I got the case three, three months before trial and, you know, all that discovery stuff was handled by someone else. All right. I see Lucia has a question. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much. Um, I had a question going back to when you said that you only had, you know, like five minutes to type whether to submit that censor. Did you have time to speak with your client? And um, what do you think was the government's strategic reason for a mistrial in that time? Yeah, so uh, that's, those are both great questions. We did have time to speak with our client, but it was basically just huddling up at counsel's table. Um, you know, while the judge was on the bench, the prosecutors were at the table next to us. We, I mean, we honestly didn't even break out to go into another room and talk in private. Um, we really had to on the spot discuss the issues. But um, I have to say, um, so the three of us who made the decision were me, Reed Weingarten, and, and Ali Sadr, you know, our client. And we were unanimous and it wasn't a close call. Um, you know, we all three were like, we got, we have to take this verdict. Um, uh, so, and, and the government came out the other way. They wanted a mistrust. So they were obviously uh, quite nervous about it, too, because usually they would the government would say, we want the verdict. They, they, they didn't want to try it again either, but they must have been nervous. 
I, that's my feeling um, of my belief. They didn't articulate it that way. Yeah. And I, su- I suppose it's possible they were concerned about an appellate issue, but um, the appellate issue being, you know, if we were convicted by a juror participating by FaceTime, right. we right, might object right. to it later. But as you can imagine, um, the judge required a very express waiver of any ability to appeal based on the juror participating by uh, FaceTime. So I don't think we would have been able to raise this issue on appeal had we not, you know, had the case not proceeded the way it did. She was very careful to make sure this was a knowing and intentional waiver on his part. All right, we got time for two more, Patrick and then Luis. Hi, um, I was just wondering if you kept in contact with Ali Sader and if you know what he's up to now and if he's still pursuing um, getting a citizenship in the United States. Yeah, you know, um, I am still in contact with Ali. Um, he became, you know, one of my favorite clients. Uh, got to know his entire family extremely well, his wife, his kids. They were all up at the trial. Just a wonderful, wonderful family. And um, we are still in touch. Um, he uh, goes back and forth between D.C. and the U.K. Um, you know, his, his wife and kids still live there because they're you know, trying to get their U.S. citizenship. Um, it's still pending, and we're keeping our fingers crossed that uh, it's going to come through any day now. But his long-term plan is still to, you know, live and raise his kids in the U.S. And, I mean, i got to hand it to him. I'm not sure that I would share that view if I had been, um, you know, prosecuted by the U.S. government in the manner and mistreated in the manner he was. But um, he loves this place, and uh, it's, it's where he's going to be once he gets that citizenship. You know, not only uh, – this is important, I think, for the students and those who are going to listen that – not only did the government um, oppose going forward and ask for mistrial, but then once he's convicted, they switch course and ask for him to be taken in, which also seems really low, especially after all the misconduct they had engaged in. They asked for him to be detained, um, and, and the judge obviously does the right thing and, and leaves him out. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah but yeah, yeah. needless to say, we were um, frustrated by that request. And, uh, I can imagine. I don't think the judge seriously considered it, um, you know, and she obviously denied the request. Yeah. Luis Rodrigo Castillo, you're up. Thank you so much for your time and um, also for your experience. I just wanted to ask quickly, was it, I put in the chat, but if a court is to actually enter an order of nulla prosequi, will the exploratory, the exploratory evidence contained in the classified discovery ever be discoverable or even shared with the defense? Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. I think what you may be referring to, so there was one piece of evidence um, that the government disclosed before they moved to dismiss the case um, that they said was classified. Um, and, um, you know, very early in discovery, they made a representation to the judge that there's no classified evidence in the case, no classified discovery. But after trial, they identified something um, that was classified. And we were going through the process of, of getting access to that evidence. I had to get, you know, security clearance and all of that. Um, and when they came in and moved to dismiss the case, they told the judge, we're, we're no longer going to make that evidence available to the defense. And we don't think that the, you know, classification agencies will declassify it or allow it to be, um, disclosed. And to this day, we have no idea what that is. Um, I, I frankly can't imagine it, you know, like I said at the outset, this case had nothing to do with terrorism or the Iranian government or any sensitive national security matters. So, um, 
unfortunately, unless, you know, sometime years down the road through a FOIA request or something, I'm not sure we're ever going to find out what was in that classified evidence. And, um, you know, um, I'm curious, but uh, I don't really have any meaningful way to get it. So, Brian, I want to thank you for for doing this. This was unbelievably informative, and and you know you spent so much time with me in the class. It's it's been great. So, thank you very much from me and all the students uh, for 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 doing this. It was really interesting. Well, absolutely, my pleasure. Um, uh, I really enjoyed talking with you, David, and, and to the whole class. Thank you for the thoughtful questions and um, and good luck as you go through the the semester and the rest of your days there at Miami. All right. Well, we'll be back in touch. And uh, thank you so much, Brian. I, I, I'll circle back with you and, and I'll ask the class just to stay on for a second. Um, but uh, thank you again, Brian. All right, you're very welcome. Have a good night, everybody. Take care. What a crazy case, right? I mean, the extent of the misconduct was truly amazing. And then how they went about covering it up and without Brian and his team to expose it, who knows if this ever would have been uncovered. It's also a shame that the judge ended up, you know, chastising them in an opinion, but, but really doing nothing about the misconduct. Of course, the conviction got vacated, which is a good start, but we need to do more to dissuade prosecutors from committing this misconduct in the first place. I invite your comments um, about what we should be doing to stop and curb prosecutorial misconduct. We've seen it from the Stevens case when we discussed it with Rob Carey in season one. In this matter, so many cases it happens. In my case, the Ali Shagan case. Um, and there's needs to be more done to stop misconduct. On a lighter note, we'll have Judge Gleason coming to speak uh, on the podcast in two weeks about an amazing project called The Holloway Project. Uh, he'll also talk about his time as a judge in the Eastern District of New York and as a prosecutor against the great Albert Krieger um, in the John Gotti case. So I'll see you back in two weeks in For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus. Thanks again for listening.